Okay. Welcome back to another episode of the Strategy Inside Everything. Uh, we got a very uh, interesting topic today and an interesting guest that, um, and interesting is probably the wrong word. It's, it's more than that. It's, I was super engaged of all places on LinkedIn. Uh, Eric Thomas is our guest today, and he posted something on LinkedIn that I immediately uh, connected with him and said, hey, you got to come on my show. We gotta, I want to hear more about your perspective on this. So uh, please welcome today the senior partner at Saga Marketing, uh, Eric Thomas. How are you doing today, buddy? I'm pretty good, man. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm good. Dude, thank you so much. I, I reached out to you and you said I'd be happy to do it. So thank you so much for making time. Um, this, the, the topic you brought up is, is really interesting to me. Um, but before we get into that, tell me, give me a little bit, a sense of your background, kind of where you started and uh, how you got to where you are and where, how you uh, founded uh, Saga Marketing. So I uh, grew up in the city of Detroit, in Detroit proper, um, as in the confines of where people pretend that it's in, so scary that they couldn't survive. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I started off doing graphic design, kind of learning it with my friends and on my own and on the internet, uh, kind of graduated to doing branding by following some people that I really respect, uh, became partners with a couple of guys. Now it's still partners with one of those guys, Marcus Burrell. Um, we eventually a couple of years ago, maybe about three years ago, started this agency called Saga that we, that we call a storytelling agency. And so, um, though my background is in graphic design, you know, I read something from David Ogilvy that kind of said, you know, the basis of all advertising has got to be the written word. And so it, that really, it, it really made me kind of rethink my approach. And so I started kind of writing and blogging on LinkedIn of all places and, you know, really to kind of figure it out. I dropped out of college. I graduated high school to 1.8. I've always been able to speak well, but I don't know exactly what to do with commas. So I figured I would just learn on the public <laughs> stage. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and you know, three months into that, my first blog post went viral, about a million and a half views on LinkedIn um, about Steve Harvey. I've got about overall about three million reads to my blogs on LinkedIn. Uh, I've been able, I've had the opportunity to speak at colleges I want to do attend. I spoke on Detroit on a panel at MIT. I've spoken um, for the IDSA, you know, uh, Industrial Design Society of America. Um, I was, you know, I was sandwiched between like the head of, you know, global branding for Coca-Cola and the head of design for Philips. And, and I've had some really interesting opportunities uh, come up from just writing and speaking and talking about uh, the things that I'm passionate about. Hey, I have not read your post, the first post you mentioned about Steve Harvey. What was your take on, on Steve Harvey? Was that around the time of the Miss uh, Universe pageant? Yeah, I wrote about how um, how bad design is the reason why he misread that card. And I kind of redesigned it pretty quickly. Like that night, I didn't even watch it. I wasn't even interested. Um, but I, I, you know, I my timeline goes crazy. Like, oh, look at his flub. So then uh, Charlemagne the God, he posts a picture of the card. I was like, well, that's that's design flaws. So I, you know, pretty quickly within about 15, 20 minutes designed what I think it should look like hierarchy wise, uh, wrote up a piece about why design is important, posted it to the internet, maybe around 12 o'clock at night and went to bed, woke up and, you know, my normal blogs were doing maybe about a thousand reads of post. By the time I woke up, it had about, you know, 5,000. I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. But by the middle of the day, I had about a hundred thousand reads. I was like, well, this is pretty crazy. Uh, four days in, I've got, you know, a million reads to this thing. <laughs> That's wild. Um, it was republished all around the world in the Philippines and all this kind of stuff. 
cited and all over the, all over the place. It was pretty it was pretty nuts. That was before I started like writing my name at the end of the thing and linking it to my property. So I missed a lot of uh, impressions, but it was a learning experience and it was really cool. I mean, I've gone from that to writing uh, my first piece for the Financial Times that just came out um, about gentrification and the city of Detroit and economic revitalization. So that's crazy. It's it's been a wild ride. Three years has been a wild ride for me as a person who, uh, by all means, by all statistics, shouldn't be writing for the Financial Times. Yeah, well, I mean, it's obvious that you have a lot of ideas that are... um valuable just from my quick scan from the, the first post I saw and from my quick scan of stuff you've written. Um, do you think you would have kept writing as much as you did if you didn't get that response to that first piece that uh, Steve Harvey piece? I think, so. I mean, my goal was to, so I had a goal and that goal was to get at least um, like 2000 reads per month. So I would write and write and write until um, until uh, people added up to that. So maybe I would get 200 reads and then 400 reads and then 500 reads and 1,000 reads. And I would just do that and I would stop at two at 2,000. Uh, eventually, you know, every once in a while, because I mean, I think the post after that only got about 5,000 reads, you know? And so I would just continue to do that and, and write again the next month. What really made me stop writing on LinkedIn was the fact that LinkedIn started to like kind of hide the posts. So my normal post would get, my normal posts get between 2,000 and 5,000 views. I get about 250,000 impressions or views to my posts per month on LinkedIn. But when I posted an article, it would only get 500 reads and 500 views. So I noticed that LinkedIn was kind of like artificially suppressing those posts. And so I would just, I'll just write my ideas into the body of the post, which doesn't allow me to be as thorough or put as many sources, but it does allow me to, um, have more dialogue and talk to more people. Yeah. I think that's probably more valuable anyway, ultimately, because you get to, um, people can ask questions and you can give back and say, well, this is what I meant by that or good idea. I should have added that or whatever. There's more to it than, than you're not just broadcasting. Yeah. Interesting. So absolutely. So the post that uh, got my attention was something that you wrote about how we are wearing out creatives. I think that's the exact phrase you used. Um, yeah. It was kind of like this. We're killing our creatives. You, you you went into this idea that it's like we think is just a light switch for creatives, but we never turn the light switch off. And it's always like, well, you got 10 minutes to design this. And then when you're done with that, take take a four minute break and then get back and give me more logo designs in, in another three hours. Yeah. I mean, it's the the way we treat. Well, OK, it's two problems here. The way we treat creativity is all screwed up. We treat creativity like it's magic. People say to you, oh, you know, just make it just make it great. Just create, you know, you're the creative. They'll say, I've got this idea to start this business. You're the creative. Make it work. Um, and and creative creativity is work. It requires a lot of work uh, to do that. And then. um then on top of that, uh, we treat creatives like they're just cows, right? Like we can just pump them for milk forever. <laughs> um, and will we forget about creatives? And we, I mean, hell, you can't even do that for cows. You have to artificially impregnate, like you have to impregnate them and steal their babies, right? Like in order for them to continue to produce milk. I mean, it's never been a safe way to do anything. What we... Well, we also forget about creatives is that the reason why the work we do is unique is because the way we see the world is unique. 
Um, and so we have this duplicitous idea that we want creatives to act like the rest of us while seeing everything differently. And that's not how this works. Um, many creatives, many creatives, and I'm not saying that most people don't, but many creatives suffer from, you know, mental health challenges, you know, bipolar disorder, depression. Um, they, they're, they're, um, trying to find a way to sink back into the world in a normal way. But when you spend your entire life seeing it differently, it's hard to kind of feel like you fit into it. And so we tie a lot of our self-worth to our output in the work that we do, because that's when people celebrate us. You know, they say that you're great. Um, and so when we're pumping and pumping and pumping and trying to turn creatives into a factory, um, and then people are just turning it down and telling you that it's trash or telling you it's not great or not paying you for your services or telling you that their nephew could do it. We're forgetting that we're telling people that their entire self-worth is something that their nephew oh. could do on a whim. We're telling people that they're, um, that not only is their ability to create a part of their identity, but you know, it's not all that good. It's not all that special. Why should we have to pay you for that? Uh, and then we're telling you to do it on a dime instantaneously. We want you to see all of the, you know, all of the cracks and all the seams and all the things in the universe that everybody else can't see. And we want you to spit that out immediately when we spent really most of our life finding those little yeah. moments and nuggets. And so it it is it's dangerous. It really is. It's really dangerous. And we expect creatives to work at different hours than everybody else. You know, graphic designers get caught at, you know, 12 at night. Like, can you turn this thing around by seven in the morning? You know, like as if it's not strange. Uh well, you don't get that for people who work at desk jobs, really. No, you would never, you, know? you would never call an accountant and say like, "Oh, hey guys, this is nine thirty. We need by by eight a.m. I got a meeting tomorrow, so I need you to really quickly just get all the books ready." Yeah, just quickly knock out that accounting. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wake up all your friends. I need you to shoot me a movie really quickly. Yeah, like, it's what pretty. In the hell? And I want you to do it for less money with lower cost equipment. Yeah, well, that there's always that the <laughs> the price thing of how much it should cost, or you know, Mike, the kid down the street can do this, so why should I pay you? is a, is a whole different battle. Um, I want to I want to unpack the. Was there an event that happened when you that made you post this thing? Was there a project or something you saw, or just you were just thinking about it and recognizing it all I mean, of a sudden? You know, it happens at least once per project. Um, but I also, I always find myself fighting for my creatives, you know, the people that I contract out to, the people that have worked for me. Um, and then I've been, uh, I've been doing graphic design for about, you know, 10, 11 years. So I've been experiencing this for my entire career. And I have the, um, the added pressure of people calling me a creative genius, quote unquote, which I don't really identify with. I think a lot of the stuff that I've been able to do comes from the fact that I've, I, I agonize over things that maybe most people don't think about. I've been on a rant about two very uh, different things. For the last few weeks, I've been ranting a lot about how um, how terrible men have been in society, and how we haven't how we haven't really taken um, account of the things that we have done, and how women are forced to live in relationship to us. And I've been ranting and raving about how incredibly well-crafted the movie uh, Avengers Infinity War is, right? Like those two things are my current rants, but it's all about things that we don't realize um, that we say uh, that don't make any sense. I've always seen the world kind of like a, uh, 
kind of like the first time it's been said, right? Case in point, there is this idea that women who have sex with a lot of men are bad, right? That they're sluts, right? Well, for me, I think it's really weird because the thing, having sex with a lot of women taints the yeah, women, right? But it doesn't weird, taint the man. It's a very weird so if you said a woman has sex with gone forever. But here's what we haven't thought about, right? In any other instance in the world, the thing that pollutes <laughs> is the problem, right? The men are polluting the women. The snakes are venomous, so the snakes are bad. But in in this culture, only the sex part is bad to the woman. The men are not the poison. When technically, in this case, men are poison. And so you you and so I, I sit around and I agonize about things like that. But I think about them and I talk about them and I think about them and I workshop them and I talk to them and I work on them and I write about them and I and I bring them back and I dialogue about them. And then when I say them on a stage, people go, oh, what an instant uh, moment of clarity. Well, I've been workshopping this idea for yeah, five or right. six years. Until it actually makes it to your fingertips and you and you key it out. Yeah. Do, do you do you think the idea of. Um, I've been thinking about the idea of, you know, we're killing our creatives and we're wearing them out. You think that applies to all um, knowledge workers? I think so. I think it applies to, I mean, I think it applies to a lot of different people at a lot of different scales. I think um, humans, for the most part, probably aren't meant to do um, factory style work. You know, like just monotonous overly routine things that don't exercise their minds. Now, I'm not saying that some people are not fine to do that work. I'm saying that shoving everyone into those roles is dangerous. Um, I think just about all work, all people who are who do, you know, the knowledge work are subject to that. But I think creatives are in a unique position. And I think it's simply because it's a creative's job to see the world differently. And in order to do that, you kind of have to be a little different. You can learn tricks, um, right? Like con like constantly asking why. If somebody says to you, if you really want to do a creative exercise, keep asking why until you get to the core of it. One of my biggest things I hate in the world are doors. I think doors are a waste of an opportunity. We've been using doors the same way since the Middle Ages, right? They've always had a hinge. They've always kind of turned. They always have a knob. The question becomes, what is that for? How did the door get here? Why does it exist? Well, in my opinion, door is a semi-permeable membrane that allows you to move between spaces, but also give you some privacy, right? That's what a door is. So why is it what it is? So if you continue to keep asking why, that is an exercise that would help you um, get there. Yep. But what you meet in creatives is you see these very kind of strange people who've always been asking why. You know, since they were like three years old, they've been trying to find out. And that why never ran out. You know, they weren't they weren't beaten in submission by the fact that the world just is. Uh, but that creates a, a kind of a typical outcast type of scenario for those folks or for us, really. Yeah, um, that's interesting. And I don't think they even I think creative people may not even verbalize the why it might be internalized and turns into the output of. Uh, they get to a conclusion that leads them to some kind of a creative idea that they can put out through design or words or whatever their, whatever their format or medium is. Right. So they need, that takes time. It, it, it takes time. You got to think about how much time that takes. I mean, even just the process of becoming a great painter 
re requires you to understand how form, how form, shape, light, color, and all of those fit together in a space. And then how do you translate that into a two dimensional plane? You're, you're really questioning um, size and scale in the context of depth versus relationship to each other on a flat canvas. You know, like most people don't have to think about those things. You know, the TV's over there and the couch is over there. <laughs> it's not what is the space between them. And then if I had to translate to that, that was something that was two dimensional. How would they then relate to each other? And if it's something that is black, black, if it's further enough in the distance that it's shrouded by atmosphere. So it creates a blue tint because light's reflecting off the, the, the particles in the air. Right. This is a different type of understanding of space. <laughs> Just, I mean, and that's just how, that's just how, that's what you have to deal with. And then when, when you're doing all of that and somebody goes, man, my nephew could do that. You know, oh, that's, <laughs> like, it's nuts. So do you, it's what's, what's the, is it the time crunching or the, um, it's not the time crunching necessarily. It's more that it's on demand and the demand doesn't move. It's, it's, I need this by tomorrow and that's inflexible, but you're going to come up with something out of nothing. And you have to do that in that this tight time window. I mean, there's a couple of things. I think you have the you have the you have the time crunching. Um, you also have the fact that I don't think a lot of environments are conducive to creative thought. Um, you know, sometimes we get to the place where everything becomes really utilitarian, and so you just kind of stuff everybody in cubicles and boxes, um, and then you create a a system because you know your clients have certain expectations, so you create a a system or process by which you create things. And so you you kind of have a lead creative who's kind of directing all of your creatives, and then they kind of have to bend to the will of that lead creative. Um, the biggest challenge uh, for that is how does your environment lead up to creative exploration and execution? Um, if your job is to understand the world differently, how do you continue to create if you haven't been exposed to the world, if you're sitting in this cubicle? Um this whole time you you know you're really what you unless you're expected to solve cubicle style problems you may not ever solve any of the big challenges that you want to it's pretty pretty interesting way to think about it and now that you're now that you're saying it look at how few people make it from beginning of the career as a creative at age 20 to retiring in the creative industry it's it's so easy to burn out oh, yeah. because of those factors that you just laid out I mean, people are literally killing themselves. I mean, if you look at, hell, if you look at somebody like Elon Musk, who I do count as a creative, I think the the way he sees the world is in that way. He's also an engineer, so he's deconstructing and finding ways to put it back together. But he's also questioning the fundamental fabric of what we live in. When he said, we need a new battery for this car, he didn't just question that there's a battery. He questioned all of the individual components of the batteries. He rebuilt the battery um, almost itself and then got his team to help him with it. He reconstructed rockets and how we even get into outer space. But he's also being expected to do that and manage that and manage the business and do all those things. And so we're watching kind of a very public meltdown of what it looks like when a creative um, runs out of steam. I think Kanye West is suffering the same thing. Mac Miller already killed himself. Uh, Amy Winehouse, Kurt Cobain. Uh, these are creatives who who have ascended um, to the highest of highs. But you look at somebody who, like Kurt Cobain, who was divorced from his own reality. He started his career 
railing against the system that he rose to the top of. And he couldn't reconcile he couldn't reconcile himself within the structure within the structure um yeah of, it became a of, became of corporate an overwhelming, life now this i've thought about i've thought about this a lot not not in relation to kurt cobain uh but the idea of um someone mark pillard who was a guest on this uh show a while back has talked a lot about depression and done a little research into it he was on and we we were talking about the idea of depression for strategists and for creative people um indirectly one thing i think that leads to depression for people in agencies is a lack of control of the output it's um you're creating this thing but you really once you share it with the first person it becomes something that's not yours and so then you just become someone who's pushing buttons to get to get the thing done um so you're you're working in these strict timelines and these these uh structures that you don't control to create produce an output that is not yours and you're kind of trained to not be passionate about it i mean yeah do you think that's what someone like kobe uh, that, that same uh, thing where it's now it's the first album they recorded songs they loved and then by the third album that they were expected to make it was just like now we need you to keep feeding the meter here because because we're expecting to make this much money for the record company You know, it's crazy. I always wonder about that, right? You see these artists that blow up and they talk about overnight, but you know, these people are working on stuff for their entire life. So the first album is a culmination of everything they've experienced in their entire life, all called down into the, like the perfect, you know, example or version of that. And then, so you take 20 years leading up to this album and then your next album has to come out next year. What more could you grow, you know, within the next year, except for the experience you had Within that year, you know, and that's why I think you see some depth drop off. But once again, you, you are putting people into that creative charm and you're and they're doing it within the context of touring for the first album and promoting and doing social media now and adding all these other layers on top of it. And so I think you're seeing a lot of very intense, very clear creative burnout. But you also see people um, there's a suicide and there's a suicide and mental health uh, epidemic in, in Silicon Valley. Uh, where there's an incredibly high amount of, of suicide uh, in their high schools and in their startups because they're expected to change the world every day, but within the parameters of this confine. And that's not how wow. this works. Like That's not Fair. how you create. You've, you've thought about this a it lot, is. I can tell. And so you mentioned, you mentioned the idea of <laughs> um, environment as one of the factors that, that you were just kind of running through, have you thought at all about yeah. changing what could change in the environments to make them more conducive to creative people or just, you know, mental health in general, I guess. You know, I think it's really, I think like I have this new rant I've been on, you know, I've got <laughs> about it sounds like and one of the ones rants, I hate is I company culture. This one. I'm a, I'm like a, it. I'm a man of rants, you know. Um, I I think company culture is some BS. And I'll tell you why. I think we've gotten to the place where company culture is starting to supersede individual culture, right? And so we, we create these companies where we're like, okay, we're about this thing. So it's about fun and joy 
in bright colors, right? But what he really does is it creates an, an environment where you get to say, this person doesn't fit my company culture because they are different than the 17 right. white guys who we hired into this place. Um, and that's not fair, right? Um, you know, a Bangladeshi guy and a, a Nigerian woman and, you know, a, a Filipino, a, a trans Filipino a woman might see creativity entirely differently. So to say, all right, coming to this place, we we drink beer every Friday and that's our creative execution, you know, or that's our creative opportunity. That might not be hmm. the same. Say uh, so it's, the person has so to be how do you Muslim. Build culture, friend, uh, how do you build culture right. to be more inclusive or to be more, not inclusive of um, culturally inclusive necessarily, but I guess different approaches to creativity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But creatively inclusive. You know, I think you, I think you have to really, I think you have to create a much more malleable space where people are feel safe to bring themselves to work. When I'm, when I talk to a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds, they are, they're not bringing their entire identity to work because they think it would either scare their, their peers or they're ashamed of their customs in the, in the greater context. Um, what happens when you say, um, on Thursday, we're playing all of Maher's music. Like anything he brings in, we're going to listen to that. And not only we listen to that, he's going to tell us about it, you know, at 4 p.m. And we're going to really get an understanding of what what growing up in that household was like. Um, and then we're going to do that for everybody. And we're going to just let people and new recruits come in and they're going to play their music. I mean, music is an incredibly great way to bond. Maybe you share that with the food on Friday. And we begin to build a, a and then we can say, hey, everybody who really shares this experience, we want you guys to get together and do whatever you want to do on Friday. So we can then share that and we can understand um, where you come from and why. And what is that world experience like? And what is your grandmother's stories? What are they about? You know, that's how you really build a culture that's inclusive. And that's how you talk about culture in the context of lived and shared experiences. Just having beanbags <laughs> doesn't make you culturally sound and relevant. Painting the painting the doors green and shit that like that's not changing anybody's life. Um, it's it's really gonna have to come down to what is the human experience and how do we start making people feel safe to. Do you think the more we can understand each terms? other individually? So if I understand you and you have stories about your grandmother or you have stories about coming from some other city than than Detroit today, wherever you lived or wherever you're moving to. Um, if I can understand that person as an individual, then I, that'll help me interpret signals from them on when they're getting an assignment or when they're getting stressed or when they're trying to explain an idea, how I can kind of shortcut it to understand like, oh, okay, this is the part they're hung up on instead of just looking at everything as black and white and saying, no, that idea is off and you have 10 minutes to fix it. Yeah. Ima imagine how different your creative conversation would be, and really all of your life conversation would be, if um, you went into a conversation about solving, maybe you were selling um, hamburger helper or something, and you were introducing a new product to the market, and uh, Triash says to you, you've had a conversation with Triash, maybe your Indian uh, coworker, about um, what dinner times were like. And you guys are all having a conversation about dinner, um, from maybe a, a suburb in Wisconsin. And all of a sudden it's not lining up and Shriash is kind of coming up with these ideas that are not really meshing with anybody else's. But then you remember something he said about his meal time, And then you remember the 
massive influx of Indian Americans that are moving, you know, or that are immigrating here and where they're settling and, you, and where they live. Because what you find out about immigrant communities is they tend to live together um, because it makes it easier. And then you say, man, have we considered this as an option? Have we considered all of the things that are different about our diff- dinner experiences as well as our similar? Then you could really create opportunities a- um, for inflection. And that, that is why I think it's, it, it'll, it's, it's more interesting. It's, you, you are able to, to share your customs and then talk about what we yeah, have in because common you know what I, by celebrating the things I, that I are different. I have been thinking a lot about um, inclusion and, um, and how to create diversity in, in advertising and creative fields. I don't think that it is an objection to – I don't think the, the largely white uh, staffs at most ad agencies – is a product of intentional um, bias necessarily. I think it is because agencies are have been so steered towards being efficient that, and this isn't this isn't an excuse. This is actually a bigger problem. They're so steered yeah. towards having uh, being efficient that they're afraid to make ten extra seconds to have someone with a different story that they have to figure out throughout the day. That it's like, no, that that lady looks just like the rest of us. This is going to be faster. You know, it's easier to understand that. It's messed up. I mean, think about it this way. How hard, how, how hard must it be for someone to be creative while trying to consider if their peers will understand their culture? So they have to, like, try to, like, most minorities, most minorities and women, right, we get what uh, white guys want. Because we, that's what we're advertised. Like that's how we're advertised too. That's how we blend in. That's why we code switch. That's why we change the way we speak because we're trying to get in. We're trying to get get along to go along, right? And so we're doing a double duty on our creative work where we're trying to get into the headspace and character of someone else and then be creative it's at such the same a, time. That makes much it infinitely harder to change be creative. From- the way the idea is born in your brain to when it gets down on paper, when you're, you know, doing something for a white audience or for a white uh, client that, you know, do you, do you translate it? Do you change the tone of it? I mean, everybody who's writing something should be changing the tone for the, the final customer, but how different is that from you for you from the, the genesis of the idea? You know, I try not to change it too much. I think we, what I've discovered is, this is funny. When I watch commercial right now, the entire idea of funny in media is literally just a white person doing a black person thing, right? All the commercials <laughs> are just like a suburban mom yeah. rapping, right? Like that's oh, like, like, that's the whole joke. You know, like, that's the entirety of the joke. Um, And I'm like, well, fine then. What if I just right. let the person that would be rapping rap? You know, like, what if I just let, what if I just let that come from the community from which it came? You know, let, let people own their own identities. Uh, of course, it's not always as gangsta as I would necessarily live it in my life. Um, but I try to do what I call subversive media, where I put the person in the scene that you wouldn't necessarily expect. So if I'm going to do something about a doctor, right, I'm going to have an, an Indian woman as the doctor. Right. Which is crazy because no. there's so many Indian women doctors, right? But you don't see that on TV anywhere. It's insane. <laughs> you would think that doctors are only right. beautiful white men. Like, 
And that is not what my, that's not what any of my hospitals look like. I mean, you're hard pressed to find like a tall white guy in there. You know, it's it's all like they're either they're older or they're young uh, immigrants. Right. You know, it's like, and so why is that not reflected in my media? Why is that not reflected? Yeah. Why are they not reflected in and my commercials? Just for, why are they not why, in my why is that though? Billboards and posters. <laughs> why is that? I can tell you why. Um, I had a guy, I, I spoke, I spoke at an, at a, uh, about, I spoke at an ad agency about cultural appropriation. And so a guy asked me, he says, what if the marketing, like what if the what if the marketing says or the market research says that our audience is, you know, an older white audience? And so what people tend to do is they tend to reflect the audience in the advertisement so that they will attach themselves to them. My argument to that is two things. A marketing isn't just a reflection of culture. It is it imprints on culture too. It creates it while it's being made. The second one is if Marvel can make you care about a, a giant purple monster who snaps his fingers and disintegrates the entire universe, I think we can get you to um, uh, <laughs> identify with somebody who's at least a color that exists on this yes, earth. I grew up in Queens you know, it, it, and I work <laughs> at hospitals and I, I don't remember too many white <laughs> staff at any level in the hospital. I mean, it was all African-American, Indian, Puerto Rican, like it was everything but at essentially white. Level. But you're right. When I watched Grey's Anatomy, it's like there's one black dude who's like in the background. But that's not what a hospital really looks like. At all, in any way. Um, I think uh, if you look at The Good Doctor, The Good Doctor is actually very diverse. Um, I mean, their lead characters, you know, an autistic kid. Um, but... But it, it, it is interesting when you see that. It's because they're trying to reflect back what they think their audiences want to see. What we, what we have to come to grips with the fact is that audiences want to see relatable motivation and intention, not necessarily just skin tone and name. You know, Black Panther made a billion dollars because the intentionality of the movie was relatable, not because, no, because the story um, there's that compelling. many black people in America that watched the movie 15 times. Uh the story was incredible. I mean, Infinity War. Like, like I said, my rant right now about Infinity War. All of these people are superheroes, aliens, and monsters. Um, and so if you cried when Thanos sacrificed his daughter, it's because you understand what it would mean to lose someone that dear to you, especially when you have to do what you feel like you need to do for the greater good. That's a universal emotion. It has nothing to do with the shade of the character. Um, and but But, you know, that takes us back to our, our original point. How, how do you arrive at those insights? I think you have to give creatives time to arrive at them, right? In space, in exposure to, to understand yeah, the, I think it's a combination of uh, time, the complexities of the universe. More time That's would be what good. Their job and, is. and agencies have really just been struggling with that. Just time for people to think and time for people to not think. Just time for oh, people yeah. to kind of pace around and, and background process. Um, and then also it's how agencies allow creative people to express themselves and share ideas, because it seems like in the creative department, there's a lot more open conversation about an idea and why it's good or bad and what's working, or maybe if we did this, or, you know, I'd like to have this kind of person in it because of this reason. But then once it moves out of the creative department, it gets boiled down into that. Well, we got a PowerPoint to put together, so... I need a keyframe. What, you know, what's it going to be? And it becomes the production 
like then it goes back into we're counting every hour. So get your mm-hmm. idea buttoned up so it can be presented. Yeah. It's 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 an interesting it's an interesting problem. I think we need to I mean the first thing I think is always dialogue. Having these conversations under like not sweeping it under the bus because it's hard. I mean depression is real, anxiety is real. I haven't met a creative today that doesn't de- deal with depression and anxiety. And when you when you when you tell a creative, you know, uh if this doesn't go out today, something horrible is going to happen. They really feel that. And they feel it in a way that it's not just like, oh, maybe this is my job. I mean, they feel it to a, a, a suicidal degree. I met, you know, there's a epidemic of graphic designers who just disappear in the middle of projects. Or, you know, especially when you have a freelancer or, you know, they just disappear in the middle or towards the end or in the beginning when they become overwhelmed because they don't want to disappoint right. the person. Of course, they are disappointing you by disappearing, but they don't have to face the disappointment. Um, in you know, that all comes in with an anxiety and, and, and in a world where we don't have enough conversation about mental health to begin with, how are people even able to manage that conversation? Uh, I'm not saying you got to treat grownups like children, but you do have to understand you're asking something unique. So your actions have to be unique in return. All right. Well, that was a point well made, Eric. I'm, I'm really glad that, uh, I saw your post on LinkedIn. I don't remember who shared it. And, uh, I'm glad that you uh, were willing to come on and talk. This was time well spent. Thank you so much. Oh yeah, I appreciate you having me. And it's you know I'm always open to talk about stuff that matters. Yeah, dude. I have a feeling you and I are going to talk more. Um, yeah, because you have a lot of interesting ideas. Uh, tell people where they can find you online and where they can uh, read your blog. I want to make sure you get your 2,000 monthly uh, views, which I'm sure you're sharing <laughs> now. Um, I mean, I so finding me on LinkedIn is pretty simple right eric s thomas on linkedin or eric s thomas.com uh i'm also eric s thomas on uh facebook but i'm maxed out on my friends so <laughs> linkedin is usually the best i'm starting to use twitter again uh I'm trying to get back into that since that's where i can really hold my rant sessions i know you is- gotta hold, keep them short though you gotta keep them tight you know t- but now nah, now they have threads so I can just rant into infinity. Uh, <laughs> um, so that's Eric underscore S underscore Thomas until I get that Eric S Thomas back under my control. <laughs> got it. And yeah, I know you've got a lot of speaking going on. Any, any speaking uh, coming up? Uh, you know, funny enough, I think this is my mental health month, right? So I'm speaking on, um, create, I'm speaking on entrepreneurs managing, um, you know, when they have a lot on their plate and they don't know what to kind of do with it. And I'm also speaking about a uh, millennial um, entrepreneurship and mental health uh, Saturday at, I think, TyCon. Uh, oh, so there's a few cool. things, too. If you All send right. me links, I will put them in the show notes for you. All right, cool. All right, man. Thanks again. This was really, uh, really a great conversation, and I appreciate you making time. All right. Thanks for having me. All right, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. Yep. I do.